Hi there! Welcome to Explain This, a podcast where we try to explain complex things in simpler ways for people of all ages. I'm your host Jen Kim, and today we'll talk about The Prisoner's Dilemma, and how game theory will make you a pro gamer. I mean, how game theory will help you succeed in life with maps and modeling. Let's get started. The Prisoner's Dilemma is one of those concepts that's perfect to talk about and explain this, because everyone's heard of it somewhere. They might know a little bit about it, but not exactly what it's all about. Well, there's a surprising amount of depth and complexity to it. So without further ado, let's jump right into it. Not much introductions needed. Imagine that you're a police officer who's caught a pair of criminals. Let's call them Tom and Jerry. Tom and Jerry have been hitting up jewelry stores all around the city, so it's good to finally catch them. Now, you've got them dead to rights. You've got enough evidence from this robbery to put them both away for at least two years. But you just don't have enough to link them to their other jobs. And the DA's pushing you to get a confession out of them so you can finally close the case. So you come up with a clever solution. You put Tom and Jerry in separate rooms. And then you offer both of them the exact same bargain. You tell them that you're going to ask both of them to confess to all of their crimes. If both Tom and Jerry confess to the crime, then they'll be sentenced to five years in jail each, because, you know, they have to atone for their crimes from their previous robberies. If both of them stay silent and not admit to the crimes, then you'll still be able to sentence them to two years jail time each for tonight's robbery. But here's the kicker. Here's the real deal. If you confess to the crime, ratting out your compadre, but the other person doesn't say anything and stay silent, then you get to walk away. No jail time at all. Instead, the other person will go to jail for 10 years. Of course, the deal is the same for both people, so if you stay silent and the other person rats you out, then you'll go to jail for 10 years while your mate gets to walk free. They're both locked in separate rooms, so they have no idea what the other person will say, and they can't collude on the answer. And sure, they've done a few jobs together and worked well as a team, but they sure don't know each other well enough to read each other's minds or have even a shred of a loyalty for each other. So what will it be? If you were Tom or Jerry, what would you choose? Stay silent and hope your accomplice also keeps their mouth shut so you can both get just two short years of jail time? Or confess because you don't trust your accomplice to not rat you out? This, dear listener, is The Prisoner's Dilemma. Alright, so let's unpack The Prisoner's Dilemma. To summarise, if both Tom and Jerry confess, they get five years jail each. If both stay silent, they get two years each. If one person confesses but the other doesn't, then the person who confessed gets no years in jail, while the other one will get ten years. So if you consider both people together, both parties staying silent is the best option, considering that only four years total of jail time is dished out instead of ten. But since you can't guarantee that the other person is going to stay silent, you're potentially risking ten years of jail time, so it's a high-risk play being silent. Whereas if you confess, then there's the potential upside of getting zero jail time, versus the risk of getting five years of jail time. So if you were looking out for yourself, the more rational choice seems to be confessing, because whatever the other person chooses, it minimizes your own jail time, comparatively speaking. But, because both people are thinking along this line, if the prisoners are being rational, they should always both confess, leading to five years of jail time. Isn't that funny? Both people have the information in front of them, so they both know the ideal situation for both of them is to stay silent, so they can both just get two years. 
but a rational person, economically speaking, is looking out for their best self-interest. And because of that, the prisoners ironically end up spending three years in jail more. Or because they couldn't trust the other person. The prisoner's dilemma is quite possibly the most famous example of a field of study that is known as game theory. And no, before you get too excited about choosing your major for your university studies, game theory has nothing to do with video games or board games. Well, for the most part, but more on that later. Game theory uses mathematical models of strategic interactions among rational decision makers to try to predict what their behavior will be. In simple words, it's a way to figure out how people make decisions when other people's decisions affect theirs. Because the game here refers to any interaction where a person's decision affects another person's payoff. For example, in The Prisoner's Dilemma, Tom's outcome is directly affected by Jerry's decision on whether he's going to confess or not. Game theory sounds complex and esoteric because it involves a lot of maths, but in reality, game theory is everywhere. When investors buy and sell stock, they have to think about and predict what other buyers are going to do. In a penalty shootout, the kicker and the goalkeeper are engaged in the game themselves. If the kicker shoots towards the direction the goalkeeper was planning on jumping to, he'll get blocked. The game is afoot, so to speak. We see these kind of games in almost every facet of human society, from sports to investments, from economics to international politics, from trade deals to poker games. Hell, just look at the Cold War, where the USA and USSR just couldn't afford to disarm first and pave the way for peace. Because what if the other side used that opportunity to strike? So you can see why trying to understand these complex interactions can be quite important. At the very least, it might help you win some board games. Game theory was pioneered by a mathematician, John Nash, in the 1950s. If you're interested in the history of game theory and learning more about the beginnings of it, the film A Beautiful Mind is a pretty good biopic of John Nash, played by Russell Crowe. It's a pretty interesting field of study in that it's using maths to explain and predict human behavior. If we go back to the prisoner's dilemma, we can see that any rational prisoner looking out for himself has to choose to confess, or defect as it was called in the original game because they just can't take the risk of being sold out by the other person. Because of game theory, the prisoners are locked into a paradox of choosing the less optimal result of serving five years each, when they could potentially be serving just two years each. This is called a Nash equilibrium in game theory, where each player is making a choice that is best for them, regardless of what the other players are deciding. Isn't it funny? The mathematical and statistically correct rational choice leads you to serving more jail time, because apparently trusting a fellow human is irrational. If you take the prisoner's dilemma at face value, it's a little bit disheartening. It seems to suggest that we're locked into making the choice that the Nash equilibrium dictates, rather than having our own free will. It's like statistics has already chosen what our best path will be, even if it's not the best result for us. And because of our fragile human psychology, we seem to make that choice every time. Furthermore, it suggests that it's not correct to trust and believe in other people, which is kind of the opposite message that we teach to our kids. So how can we beat the prisoner's dilemma? Is there a way we can make choices that benefit all of us for the best combined result, rather than being selfish and quote-unquote rational? Let's take a short break, then we'll come back and delve into the reality of the prisoner's dilemma. Welcome back. Okay, so we've talked about how the game theory model of the prisoner's dilemma states that because both parties see that the best way to minimize their own jail time without knowing the other person's decision is to confess, both people end up confessing, and they get five years of jail each. Even though they know the rules of the game, and that if they both choose to stay silent, they'll only get two years. 
Because rational players in mathematical models choose self-interest over mutual benefit. That's just how it is. But what happens if we test this theory on actual people? Do they act like these rational players in these models? Like I said before, there are hundreds of examples of these kind of games all around us. But some researchers took it further and decided to test the actual prisoner's dilemma on real people. They ran the experiment with two separate groups, actual prisoners, fair enough, and students. Instead of jail time, they gave the groups an incentive of either cigarettes or cash, respectively. As in, if both people in the game cooperate with each other, they'll get $50 or 5 cigarettes each. If they both betray each other, they'll get $10 or 1 cigarette each. And if one person betrays but the other person cooperates, then the betrayer, or defector, takes $100 or 10 cigarettes, and the other person gets nothing. What do you think the results were? Do you think people behaved exactly as the model predicted and all stabbed each other in the back? Or is there goodness in people and they all chose to cooperate and smoked happily ever after? Please don't smoke, it just kills you in the most horrible ways possible. The results were quite interesting. In the student group, 37% chose to cooperate, while the others defected. In the prisoners group, 56% chose to cooperate. Now, doesn't that say something about the viciousness of uni life? Just kidding, there are probably lots of different factors involved, like prisoners being in a prison environment where cooperation is usually beneficial, while students think that other students will think like them, so they're more likely to defect because they've read about game theory and the prison's dilemma. But either way, it shows the models are just that. Models. They're there to try and predict behaviour, but not with 100% accuracy. Because people aren't rational machines. We compromise, we trust, we give people the benefit of the doubt, we make silly decisions based on psychological biases, and we overthink. Let's talk a little bit more about overthinking. In game theory, there's a concept called K-level reasoning. Level 0 thinking is when you take things at face value and assume nothing about the other players. So in The Prisoner's Dilemma, you might think that confessing has a possibility of 0 or 5 years, versus staying silent that has a possibility of 2 or 10 years. So you think, well, I might as well confess because either way I get less jail time. Level 1 thinking is one step deeper. So you're thinking about what the other player might be doing. As in you think the other player is also thinking along the same level 0 thinking as you, so you know they're going to confess, in which case you have to also confess to avoid getting the 10 year penalty. This is the Nash equilibrium that we talked about, where you're forced to confess to minimize your jail time. But what if we go one level deeper? Level 2 thinking is where you think the other person is also thinking about the Nash equilibrium because you're both well-educated prisoners who understand game theory. So you choose to stay silent because maybe the other person will be thinking along the same line as you and see that it's the best choice for both of you to be silent. But then, level 3 thinking dictates that if the other person will choose to stay silent, then you might as well confess to walk free. You can see how it's levels all the way down. And this is how it works in a lot of competitive games like chess or magic. You have to think many steps ahead and think what is my opponent going to be doing and how do I respond to that and how will my opponent respond to what I respond to and you have to make choices based on those possibilities. You can see this kind of overthinking in rock paper scissors as well. If your opponent says, you know what, you seem like a cool guy and I won the game last time so I'm just going to play rock. So you play paper and win, okay? Now level 0 thinking takes that statement at face value so you play paper. If your opponent was telling the truth, then you'd win. Level 1 thinking is when you think the opponent is tricking you, so you think that they're going to play scissors to beat your paper, so you choose to play rock to beat their scissors. 
But what if your opponent's real good and they see through that? What if they're thinking level one as well? Then according to level two thinking, they're going to anticipate your rock and play paper. So what you should be doing is actually playing scissors. Now you think you're real clever at level two, play scissors, but then lose your honest opponent's rock. Thinking and planning and strategizing are all important tools for human beings to survive in the world. But we can see that overthinking can often lead to even worse results. There are so many real examples of this kind of behavior in recent history. Think about the partition of Korea into North and South, or the establishment of Israel sparking a half-century-long bloody conflict in the Middle East. In both situations, the best outcome would have been if both parties cooperated and agreed on a unified plan. But in the case of Korea, the US-backed South Korea formed a government first because the US were afraid that the Soviet Union would unify the Korean peninsula under a communist regime. So North Korea formed its own government in retaliation, and then soon after that invaded South Korea to strike first and avoid being invaded by the imperialists, leading to the tragic Korean War. Same with Israel and Palestine. They could have just taken longer to work out a peaceful division of the land between Arab and Jewish people, but because Israel hastily set up shop, it resulted in numerous conflicts between Israel and all the surrounding Arab states, not to forget the humanitarian crisis in Palestine ever since, also. This is the prisoner's dilemma in the real world. Yes, we see people taking a chance in trusting people, giving them a chance to cooperate, but we also see a lot of backstabbing and selfishness and what bird people might call dick moves. All because of our overthinking and anxiety and maths. Because the rational choice in a game doesn't always mean the best possible outcome. It's just the statistically best option for you, assuming your co-players are also being jerks. So maybe the answer to the question, how do we beat the prisoner's dilemma, is as simple as the solution offered in the movie War Games. The only way to win is to not play. Screw the rules and the maths and the Nash equilibrium. Do what you think is best overall and go by your own values. Sometimes, yes, the best choice will be to be selfish, because otherwise you'd be an exploited doormat. But you don't always have to make that choice. You can choose to trust the other person, even if that risks you getting a worse outcome. At least you took a chance. But either way, it's really hard, ain't it? So to help you, I'm going to teach you one more trick to help you navigate the prisoner's dilemma. Tit for tat. Alright, so the prisoner's dilemma has been fascinating scholars and researchers around the world for decades because of all the implications. Like we talked about, game theory can be applied to simple competitions like a penalty shootout or a chess match, but it can also have global impacts such as climate change negotiations, international trade deals, and geopolitical conflicts. So people have been wanting to quote-unquote solve the prisoner's dilemma for ages. What's the best strategy? Yeah, sure, the only way to really win is to not play, but what if we're forced to play? So what one group of researchers did was they hosted a competition back in 1980. But not just any competition with rational human beings. No, they decided to use cold-blooded, rational computers. The competition was simple. Design an AI that will interact with a bunch of other AI that other competitors have designed. When the programs face each other, they'll be faced with the prisoner's dilemma. Cooperate? or defect and betray. Points were divided out as per the prisoner's dilemma. If both programs chose to cooperate, then they get three points each. If they both defect, one point each. If one defects and the other tries to cooperate, the defector gets five points while the other gets zero. Participants of this tournament used all sorts of strategies. 
Some keep this simple by telling the AI to always cooperate or always defit. The latter one was particularly popular because that's what the Nash equilibrium suggests, according to game theory. Now, if you take all of these clever programs and run it through thousands of simulations, the eventual winner should be the best strategy to navigate the prisoner's dilemma, right? So, who do you think won? What strategy works best in prisoner's dilemma situations? Well, surprisingly, the winner of the tournament was a program that was also one of the simplest. It used a strategy that is now famous as the tit-for-tat strategy. The rules of the strategy are simple. To start with, the program always chooses to cooperate. It's a nice guy. But following from there, it follows the rule of equivalent exchange. This means that if it faces another AI, it chooses to cooperate at first. If the other AI also cooperates, then sweet, they'll keep playing the game by cooperating, raking in lots of points. But if the other AI chooses to defect, then the other AI wins the first round and takes the 5 points. But the tit-for-tat AI learns this behavior and chooses to defect the second round, because it remembers. The tit-for-tat strategy is basically an eye for an eye. If the other AI wants to cooperate, everything's hunky-dory. But if it's betrayed, it'll viciously attack back. But then, if the opponent changes its mind and cooperates again, the tit-for-tat AI will forgive it and go back to cooperating. Now, before you say anything, it's important to point out that this strategy only works in what's called an iterated prisoner's dilemma, where the players play the dilemma over and over. Obviously, the strategy doesn't work in a single game, because there's no chance to retaliate. But fortunately in the real world, problems aren't as simple as a single prisoner's dilemma game. There's always a string of decisions to be made over time. So this is a more realistic model of how the real world works. Alright, so let's go back to the tournament. You'd think the tit-for-tat strategy is inferior to the always defect option because they lose the first round. But remember that not all the other programs are always defecting. Some of them want to cooperate. So let's run the maths. Assume that two tit-for-tat programs and two always defector programs are playing six games each total. When a tit-for-tat player plays against the defector, the defector wins the first round and gets 5 points. But after that, tit for tat retaliates and they both defect for the next 5 rounds, meaning they get 1 point each per round. So the final tally is 5 points for tit for tat, 10 points for defector. If two defectors play against each other, they'll always both defect, meaning that they both get 6 points at the end. But if two tit for tats play against each other, then they both cooperate each round, meaning they both get 18 points by the end of the game. So the final tally for a defector is 6 plus 10 plus 10, which is 26 points. For tit for tat players, they get 5 plus 5 plus 18 points, which is 28 points. Tit for tat wins! This is because in the long term, cooperation is a better strategy and yields more points. It's worth losing the first round because the reward of cooperation is far greater if you meet someone that also trusts and cooperates. In human terms, the tit for tat strategy works like this. Say your coworker Becky asks for your help on a project. You decide to cooperate and help them, but then they betray you by taking sole credit, getting a pay rise, while you get nothing. Well, screw you, Becky, I'm not gonna help you out anymore. I'm gonna be cutthroat and competitive against you from now on. But let's say another coworker, Jane, asks for your help. You haven't played a game with her, so to speak, so you default to cooperating because it's the first round. Jane is a decent human being, so she cooperates back and together you two successfully pull off an awesome project and you're both rewarded handsomely. Great! But if Jane ever throws you under the bus, you'll be ready to retaliate. 
The tit-for-tat strategy has been proven to be one of the most effective ways to beat the prisoner's dilemma, because it takes advantage of how cooperating is better than both people being vicious and cutthroat, while not being trampled on when your kindness is exploited. Personally, I've found it to be a useful default strategy for navigating life, and board games too. Yeah, it sounds like I'm a Terminator, but why wouldn't you want to use maps to improve your life? Now, of course, the tit-for-tat strategy isn't perfect. Even if both players are employing the tit-for-tat strategy, if someone mistakes the other's action as an attack, then they'll retaliate, triggering a vicious cycle. This is kind of how wars start, like World War I starting because Country A started mobilizing their armies because they thought Country B was going to invade their friend. But this scares Country B into mobilizing until everything escalates beyond the reach of diplomacy and war broke out, killing millions of people. So there are modified strategies to prevent this, like tit for two tats, where you wait one turn before retaliating. It's like giving your opponent a second chance. Or tit for tat with forgiveness, where you might randomly cooperate one turn instead of retaliating, even if you're in a vicious cycle, to see if you can break the cycle. So if you've been burned too many times over trusting people, or want to stop being so cutthroat and selfish, try the tit for tat strategy next time because there'll be plenty of nice people that want to cooperate with you to be constructive and productive, while you'll not bother wasting your time and energy on people who have no intention of cooperating with you and just want to abuse your kindness. It reminds me of the allegory of the long spoons by the Rabbi Haim of Romshok. Side note, I've been told that I've been pronouncing allegory wrong all my life, like in the last episode where I kept saying allegory. Thanks for the correction, Mike. Anyway, Rabbi Haim taught his followers that in hell, you only have very long spoons to eat with. You can use the spoon to scoop up some delicious soup, but because the spoon is too long, you won't be able to feed yourself, because the spoon is longer than your arm. So everyone in hell is starving because they're selfishly trying to feed themselves with impossible long spoons. But in heaven, the same people are full and content because they're feeding each other with the spoons. Cooperation trumps selfishness. So be nice and you'll be fed and happy. I remember as a kid thinking, why don't you just grab the spoon further down the handle? But apparently uh, all these people had wooden planks fixed to their arms so they can't bend their arm. So there you go, more you learn. Anyway, the point is, don't be a dick. Unless someone else is a dick to you. But also forgive. It's not as graceful or poignant as Jesus' lectures and parables, but it does the trick. I love The Prisoner's Dilemma because it's one of those models, like the trolley problem, that can teach us a lot about life and human behaviour. So I'd like to end today's explanation with this thought. Imagine you were playing The Prisoner's Dilemma, wait for it, with a copy of yourself. This copy thinks like you, acts like you, but is their own separate person in their own right. Hell, they probably think they're the original and you're the copy. In this scenario, if you were offered the deal by the cop with your copy locked in another room being offered the same deal, what would you choose? Would you trust yourself to cooperate for minimum jail time? Or do you think they'd make the quote-unquote rational choice and sell yourself out to score zero jail time? How do you know that your copy doesn't love themselves more than you? Think about that. Alright, so what did we learn today? We learned about the famous game theory model, The Prison's Dilemma where two people have to make a choice, but the final outcome changes depending on both people's choice, so you have to consider the other person's possible choices before making your own. We learned that, mathematically speaking, it's always better to defect because you get the minimum jail time regardless of the other player's choice, even though this means you can't potentially get the best outcome where both of you cooperate. 
We learned about how game theory affects everything from interpersonal relationships to sports games to warfare. But we also learned that human beings can't be reduced to simple models, because we aren't always rational. We also learned about the strategy of tit-for-tat, which might be the best way to navigate life when it is full of prisoners' dilemmas. Okay, for today's two-minute explain, I thought I'd teach you about another weird maths problem called the Monty Hall problem. This comes from an old game show where the host Monty Hall would show you three doors. One door has a brand new car, the other two have goats. The rules are simple. You choose one door, let's say door one, which remains closed. Then, Monty Hall will open one of the other two doors, and there'll always be a goat behind that open door. Let's say he opens door three and there's a goat. He then asks you if you want to lock in door one, or if you want to switch to door two, now that you know that door three was a goat. At the end of the game, you get to keep what was behind the chosen door. So, do you switch or not switch? Most people think because now that one door is ruled out, the chance of a car being behind door number one goes from a third to a half. But if you think that, you'd be wrong. You should always switch because this doubles your odds of winning the car. It sounds weird, so let me explain how. If the car really is behind door one, then Monty Hall will randomly open either door two or three since they both have goats. Either way, if you switch to either door, you lose because you were right in the first place. But there's only a third chance in the first place of choosing the right door, right? In the other two thirds of possibilities, if the car was behind door two, say, Monty Hall has to show you door three. In this case, if you switch from door one to door number two, you win the car. The same applies if the car was behind door number three, since Monty Hall has to show you door number two, the only other door with a goat that he can show you. So you switch to door 3 and win the prize. So if you only look at the probabilities of winning a car after deciding to switch, a third of the time you'd lose, but two thirds of the time you'd win. This is double the probability of choosing the right door before Monty Hall opens a door with a goat. It sounds really confusing and weird, but that's because the probability was locked in when you first chose a door. Since Monty Hall had to open a door with a goat behind it, even if you knew one of the other doors definitely has a goat behind it, the probability of you choosing the right door in the first place is always one-third. It doesn't magically improve to one and two. But if you make a switch, you change the probability to two-thirds because you chose a different door. Ta-da! This is the infamous Monty Hall problem, which has been the topic of numerous bar debates because the solution sounds ludicrous, but you can prove it with induction and maths. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening to Explain This. I hope you learned something interesting and maybe even useful today. Try the tit-for-tat strategy when you next have an annoying coworker. We'll see you next time. Bye for now. Explain This was written and hosted by me, Jin Kim. If you'd like to suggest a topic or just send a lovely message, you can email me at explainthiscast at gmail.com or follow me on Facebook or Twitter 